This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. We are excited to announce that there is a way for people who do not have smartphones or who prefer to use their computers to listen to the Return to Order Moment. All you need to do is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org. When you get there, you will see the Return to Order logo at the top of the page. Immediately under that is a dark yellow bar with eight buttons. The second from the right is Podcast. Simply click on that word and you will go directly to our podcast page. The newest episode will be the first on the list. Click the little arrowhead under the title, sit back and listen. We publish a new podcast every week at midnight when Tuesday becomes Wednesday. So, if you go to the website every week, it is easy to hear our latest episode. So now we thank you for listening to our current episode. Where is Pope Francis taking Holy Mother Church? For several years, Pope Francis was sort of a mystery. Often his statements are unclear. Sometimes he would write something and then a few days later would say something that opposed the written statement. That tendency made people scratch their heads and wonder which statement reflected his real opinion. As time has passed, Francis's actions have answered many such questions. This episode of the Return to Order Moment will look at three of those actions. We will look first at the Pope's recent tour of Canada. Then we will consider the welcome that he accorded Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in Rome. Finally, we will examine his curious support for the atheist and communist government of Cuba. In each case, Pope Francis displays his affection for the leftist positions in opposition to the traditions of the Catholic Church. Our first essay today comes from the pen of an old friend of the TFP, Roberto de Mattei, the Italian historian. His essay on Pope Francis's Mia Cupa in Canada examines the historical role of the Church in the North American wilderness. Faithful to the mandate of her divine master to quote, Go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature, St. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, the Catholic Church, since her foundation, has carried out a great missionary work through which she has brought to the world not only the faith, but civilization, sanctifying places, peoples, institutions, and customs. Thanks to this work, the Church has also civilized the people of the two Americas, immersed in paganism and barbarism. In Canada, the first Jesuit mission among the Iroquois Indians, headed by Father Charles Lalamont, 1587-1674, landed in Quebec in 1625. A new mission arrived in 1632, led by Father Paul Lejeune, 1591-1664. Father John de Brebeuf, 1593-1649, returned in 1633 with two other priests. From longhouse to longhouse, they began to teach the catechism to children and adults. However, some witch doctors convinced the Indians that the presence of the fathers was causing a drought, epidemics, and every other misfortune. The Jesuits then decided to protect the catechumens by isolating them in Christian villages, the first of which was built four miles from Quebec with houses, a fort, 
a chapel, a hospital, and a residence for the fathers. At the same time, some volunteers offered to convert the Indians. St. Marie of the Incarnation, Marie Guayart Martin, 1599-1672, an Ursuline nun from Tours who, with two other nuns, had founded a boarding house in Quebec for the education of Indian children, Marie-Madeleine de la Peltrie, 1603-1671, a French widow who, with some hospital sisters from Dieppe, had set up a hospital also in Quebec, the members of the Society of Our Lady who, in 1642, with the help of the Sulpician priest Jean-Jacques Ollier, 1608-1657, and the Company of the Most Holy Sacrament, built Ville-Marie, which would later become the city of Montreal. The Iroquois Indians, however, proved inflexibly hostile. They had horribly mutilated Father Isaac Jogues, 1607-1646, and his assistant René Goupil, 1608-1642, by pouring burning coals on them. In March of 1649, the Iroquois martyred Father Jean de Brebeuf and Father Gabriel Lallemand, 1610-1649. Father de Brebeuf was pierced with red-hot rods, and the Iroquois tore off pieces of his flesh, devouring them before his eyes. Since the martyr continued to praise God, they tore off his lips, cut out his tongue, and put burning embers down his throat. Father Lalamont was tortured next, with even greater ferocity. Then, a savage smashed his head with his axe and tore out his heart, drinking the blood in order to absorb his strength and courage. In December, another wave of hatred made two new martyrs, Father Charles Garnier, 1605-1649, and Father Noel Chabanel, 1613-1649. The eight Jesuit missionaries, known as the Canadian Martyrs, were proclaimed blessed by Pope Benedict XV and canonized by Pope Pius XI in 1930. These episodes are part of Canada's historical memory and cannot be forgotten. Pope Francis, as a Jesuit, should know this epic, whose narrators include his confrere Father Celestino Testore in his book I Santi Martiri Condici, But above all, the Holy Father should have exercised greater prudence in the case of the alleged discovery of mass graves in the Indian residential schools, a network of boarding schools for the indigenous people of Canada, founded by the government and entrusted mainly to the Catholic Church, but also in part to the Anglican Church of Canada, 30%, with the idea of integrating young people into the culture of the country according to the Gradual Civilization Act approved by the Canadian Parliament in 1857. In recent decades, the Catholic Church has been accused of having participated in a plan for the cultural extermination of the Aboriginal peoples, whose young people were allegedly kidnapped from their families, indoctrinated, and sometimes subjected to abuse so that they could be assimilated by the dominant culture. In June of 2008, on indigenous grounds, the Canadian government apologized to the natives and set up a 
Commission de Verité et Reconciliation, CVR, for the Indian Residential Schools. The researchers of the commission, despite the $71 million they received, worked for seven years without finding the time to consult the archives of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. This religious order began to manage the residential schools at the end of the 19th century. Based on these very archives, the historian Henri Goulet, in his Histoire des pensionnats indiens catholiques au Québec, Le rôle déterminant des repères oblat, University Press of Montreal, 2016, showed that the Oblates were the only defenders of the traditional language and the way of life of the Indians of Canada, unlike the government and the Anglican Church, which insisted on a form of integration that uprooted the indigenous peoples from their origins. This historiographical tack finds confirmation in the works of one of the leading international scholars of Canadian religious history, Professor Luca Codignola Bow of the University of Genoa. Meanwhile, the accusation of cultural genocide has been turned into that of physical genocide. In May 2021, the young anthropologist Sarah Beaulieu, after examining the land near the former residential school of Kamloops with ground-penetrating radar, launched the hypothesis of the existence of a mass grave without ever having done even one excavation. The anthropologist's statements, reported by the mainstream media and endorsed by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, have been spun into various narratives, some of which claim that hundreds of children were killed and secretly buried in mass graves or in irregular mounds on the grounds of Catholic schools all over Canada. This news is simply devoid of any foundation, seeing that no bodies have ever been exhumed, as Vic van Brantigem documented on February 22, 2022, on his blog. On April 1, 2022, the UCCR blog presented a thoroughgoing interview with the historian Jacques Roulard, professor emeritus of the Faculty of History of the University of Montreal who categorically denies the cultural and physical genocide of indigenous Canadians, repudiating the existence of mass graves at the residential schools, convinced that what is behind it all is only an effort to demand millions in compensation. On January 11th, the same Professor Roulard published an extensive article on the Canadian portal Dorchester Review, stating that no child's body has been found in the alleged mass graves, in clandestine burials, or any other form of irregular burial at the Kamloops School. Behind the boarding school are only ordinary cemeteries, where students of the school were buried, along with members of the local community and the missionaries themselves. According to the documents presented by Roulard, 51 children died at the boarding school between 1915 and 1964. In the case of 35 of them, records have been found establishing the cause of death, mainly illnesses and, in some cases, accidents. 
A new article by Professor Tom Flanagan and the magistrate Brian Giesbrecht, published under the title The False Narrative of the Residential School's Burials on March 1st, 2022 in the Dorchester Review, reiterates that there is no trace of a single student having been killed in the 113-year history of the Catholic residential schools. According to the data furnished by the Comisión de Verité y Reconciliación, the mortality rate among young people attending residential schools was, on average, about four deaths per year for every thousand young people. The leading causes were tuberculosis and influenza. It seems that evacuations at Kamloops have been finally authorized, but as Professor Roulard affirms, it would have been better if these had taken place last autumn, so as to learn the truth and keep Pope Francis from apologizing on the basis of unproved hypotheses. These are the words of the Canadian academic. Quote, It is hard to believe that a preliminary search for an alleged cemetery or mass grave in an apple orchard on reserve land near the residential school of Kamloops could have led to such a spiral of claims endorsed by the Canadian government and repeated by mass media all over the world. It gives a terrible and simplistic impression of the complex issues in Canadian history. The exhumations have not yet begun, and no remains have obviously been found. Imaginary stories and emotion have outweighed the pursuit of truth. On the road to reconciliation, isn't the best way to seek and tell the whole truth rather than deliberately create sensational myths? Unquote. In June 2022, the world's news media carried pictures of a smiling Pope Francis welcoming Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and her husband Paul to the Vatican. This gesture was newsworthy because Mrs. Pelosi is a strident voice in the support of so-called abortion rights, a position in direct opposition to long-established Catholic doctrine. Scholar and historian Luis Sergio Salomeo considers the likely effect of this visit in his essay, Pope Francis's Warm Welcome to Nancy Pelosi, a not-so-subtle message of support for abortionists. Pope Francis remained silent as anti-abortion Catholics and non-Catholics around the world joyfully celebrated the Supreme Court's landmark decision overturning Roe v. Wade giving the impression that he was at least uncomfortable, if not displeased with it. Then, on June 29th, the solemnity of the holy apostles Peter and Paul, he broke his silence, not with words, but with a symbolic gesture. He greeted and blessed the pro-abortion representative Nancy Pelosi in St. Peter's Basilica. After that brief meeting, the House Speaker attended Mass and received communion. Although the Pope did not give her Holy Communion, due to health reasons he did not celebrate Mass, but attended next to the altar, he must have known that Mrs. Pelosi was going to receive Holy Communion, as she normally does. And the Vatican Protocol Office gave her a place of honor. 
Indeed, Nicole Winfield, writing for the Associated Press, reports that at the Mass, quote, she was seated in a VIP diplomatic section of the Basilica and received communion along with the rest of the congregants, according to two people who witnessed the moment, unquote. Pope Francis showed no sign of contentment with the pro-life movement's great victory with the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling, which drastically restricts the crime and sin of abortion. On the contrary, he welcomed a politician who publicly criticized that ruling and who is an outspoken supporter of abortion. How is it possible not to interpret his attitude as support for pro-abortion Catholics? It must be recalled that, after numerous private warnings, the Most Reverend Salvatore Codrilione, Archbishop of San Francisco, published a notice forbidding abortionist leader Nancy Pelosi to receive Holy Communion in his archdiocese. Quote, until such time as you publicly repudiate your advocacy for the legitimacy of abortion and confess and receive absolution of this grave sin in the sacrament of penance. Unquote. Nancy Pelosi, who insists on calling herself Catholic, ignored her pastor's serious communication founded on church doctrine, canon law, and the Worthiness to Receive Holy Communion Memorandum, 2004, by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. In it, the then-prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith reaffirmed the principle of refusing communion to pro-abortion Catholic politicians. She has not publicly repudiated her abortionist activism. On the contrary, the very day of the Supreme Court ruling, the Speaker of the House gave an impassioned speech, saying, among other things, quote, Today, the Republican-controlled Supreme Court has achieved the GOP's dark and extreme goal of ripping away women's rights to make their own reproductive health decisions. A woman's fundamental health decisions are her own to make, in consultation with her doctor and her loved ones, not to be dictated by far-right politicians. While Republicans seek to punish and control women, Democrats will keep fighting ferociously to enshrine Roe v. Wade into law, unquote. Pelosi not only expressed her contempt for the church's teaching on abortion, but she also took a scandalous stance on the sin of homosexuality. The next day, June 25th, she spoke at San Francisco's Pride Brunch 2022, where she again attacked the victory against abortion and championed so-called same-sex marriage. On Sunday the 26th, she participated in the San Francisco Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Pride Parade. This was not the first time she supported the homosexual movement. She always votes in their favor. Several days earlier, on June 10th, she participated in a drag queen show, during which she stated, quote, Your freedom of expression of yourselves in drag is what America is all about. 
I say that all the time to my friends in drag. Unquote. Despite all this, Pope Francis greeted the Speaker of the House with a smile, as shown in a photo released by the Vatican. She said he gave her a blessing before she attended Mass at St. Peter's and received communion. The Vatican statement on Dobbs came from a well-known liberal close to the homosexual movement, Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia, president of the Pontifical Academy for Life. The Pontifical Academy's communique stated, among other things, that it is, quote, important to reopen the non-ideological debate on protecting life without falling into a priori ideological positions, unquote. It goes on to recommend, quote, adequate sexual education, guaranteed health care accessible to all, and legislative measures to protect the family and motherhood, overcoming existing inequalities, unquote. What does the Pontifical Academy mean by avoiding a priori ideological positions in the fight against abortion? It is unclear. Could it be abandoning Catholic morals and the principles of natural law, which, a priori, forbid exterminating the innocent in their mother's womb? The least that can be said is that this innocuous statement shows not the slightest joy and gratitude to God for having allowed this ruling, which prevents numerous sins that transgress against both the divine and natural law. With this great victory, Pope Francis should express joy and thank the American pro-life movement. It kept the flame of morals and natural law alive for many decades. Year after year, the March for Life brings together huge crowds in the dead of winter, while dedicated pro-lifers pray in front of abortion clinics and convince poor, disoriented mothers not to sacrifice their children. How many have been arrested in this heroic struggle, but they were never discouraged and never withdrew from the fight? In addition, the pontiff should also thank the Supreme Court justices who, facing abortionists' furious threats, have ruled according to law and justice, fulfilling their duty to their country. The fight against abortion has not ended with the Supreme Court's decision. The struggle for morality, a sense of good and evil, and the natural law continues with the grace of God the first draft of this article was already written when the Argentine pontiff's interview with journalist Philip Polella came to light. In it, Pope Francis reiterated his condemnation of abortion. However, when asked about the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade, quote, Francis said he respected the decision, but did not have enough information to speak about it from a juridical point of view, unquote. Regarding the Archbishop of San Francisco banning Nancy Pelosi from receiving communion in the Archdiocese until she changes her pro-abortion stance, Pope Francis had strong criticism for the zealous prelate and not for the obstinate Speaker of the House. He said, quote, when the church loses its pastoral nature, when a bishop loses his pastoral nature, 
it causes a political problem. That's all I can say. Unquote. Despite his criticism of abortion, the interview reinforces the impression that he was at least uncomfortable, if not displeased, with the Supreme Court's ruling. And his criticism about the barring of Nancy Pelosi from communion constitutes yet another message of support for the abortion movement. He would do well to remember St. Paul's warning. And so anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be behaving unworthily toward the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone is to recollect himself before eating this bread and drinking this cup, because a person who eats and drinks without recognizing the body is eating and drinking his own condemnation. See 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. The month after the Pope's warm welcome for Mrs. Pelosi, he made a statement of support for the Cuban government. Mr. John Horvat dissects that statement and its repercussions in his essay, Pope Francis Calls Cuba a Symbol of What? Cuba was recently mentioned during a July 12th interview Pope Francis gave to Televisa Univision's VIX streaming service. His remarks cannot help but cause consternation to those suffering in this communist island prison. Quote, I love the Cuban people very much. I also confess that I maintain a human relationship with Raul Castro. Unquote. His reference to Raul Castro is like saying that although he loves the inmates in this prison, he gets along well with the warden responsible for their suffering. Adding to the confusion, the Pope called Cuba a symbol and a country with a great history. The commentaries come a little over a year after the largest anti-government protests the country had seen in decades, asking for freedom from communism. The protests were so intense that many thought the end of the regime might be in sight. However, the communist regime brutally suppressed the peaceful demonstrations. Many protesters were subjected to arbitrary arrests, torture, and draconian prison sentences. The Vatican and the West let that anniversary pass without commentary. Meanwhile, the misery grows. A recent dengue outbreak demonstrates how bad things are and how indifferent the West is to Cuba's suffering. Dengue is a viral disease transmitted by mosquitoes that leads to fever, vomiting, and even death. Prevention and treatment of dengue are not complicated in most modern countries. Mosquito fumigation and eradication programs usually prevent any significant spreading of the disease. While there is no specific treatment for dengue, early detection and proper hospital treatment mitigates its effects and minimalizes fatalities in most normal countries. However, Cuba is not a normal country. Everything seems to conspire against proper treatment. To begin with, most governmental agencies have conflicting reports on the extent of the disease. No one knows how many have it since the health system lacks testing supplies. Government statistics are notoriously unreliable. 
video shared on social media by suffering Cubans present a more accurate picture of the disease's devastation and strain on the public health system. Dramatic scenes at emergency rooms and hospitals show the helplessness of most sufferers as doctors have nothing to offer. Contributing to the dengue epidemic is the unavailability of simple products and services. There are no screens for windows to keep mosquitoes out. People use improperly stored water in their houses since most have limited access to running water. Mosquito repellents and netting are not readily available to the population. Larvicide and diesel fuel needed for fumigation are also lacking. Things only get worse when the dengue-infected person gets to the hospital. Patients have to bring their own bedding. Many hospitals lack running water and basic supplies, like gloves, syringes, and other materials. Medicines that are readily available in pharmacies elsewhere are in short supply. Lack of gas affects ambulance services to transport patients needing urgent care. Slowing things down generally are electric blackouts that last several hours every day. Officials blame a, quote, power generation deficit, unquote, which means several generating plants are off the grid because, like most other things in the country, they lack maintenance or repair. Chronic food shortages and civil unrest also contribute to the disaster. This is clearly a country living in a state of emergency that needs help. However, it has lived in this state for decades, and its officials insist it needs no help. The poor communist country is only worsening as it spirals downward with its broken ideology, which can never produce prosperity. Indeed, even worse is that liberation theologians and Western leftists point to Cuba as a model, even a paradise, for the world. They have propagated the myth that Cuba has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. Meanwhile, its people are dying. Indeed, Cuba is a symbol. On the one hand, it symbolizes the continuation of communist tyranny, misery, and brutality. For the West, Cuba is a painful symbol of its indifference and hypocrisy. Those who yet resist in Cuba are a symbol of Christian courage and long-suffering, anticipating the day when they will be free to write the great history that awaits them. This concludes Where is Pope Francis Taking Holy Mother Church? Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another way is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcasts on top. 
We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.